0: Ever wondered who and what is shaping Luxembourg? This is your Lux Unplugged podcast with your hosts, Adrian and Thierry.
1: Hi, I'm Adrian. Welcome to this special edition of the Lux Unplugged podcast. On this occasion, Thierry and I are very pleased to sit down with former UK Conservative Member of Parliament, Dominic Grieve. This discussed the latest situation in Great Britain compared to the rest of Europe and certainly Luxembourg. As listeners will hear in a moment, Dominic's connection with Luxembourg goes back a while in history. Dominic has held influential positions in the past in the context of UK politics. Most notably, he was Attorney General, the Chief Legal Advisor to the UK Government under Prime Minister David Cameron from 2010 until 2014. Most notably, he was a very prominent Remainer at the time when Britain questioned its place in the EU which ultimately led to the now infamous Brexit referendum in 2016. A very vocal critic of Boris Johnson, Dominic was eventually suspended as a Conservative MP in 2019 as a result of rebelling against Johnson's approach to prepare the UK's departure from the European Union. As Cherry and I both live in London and have been there for quite some time now, lots of people ask us what the UK has been like since leaving the European Union. Indeed, It's very difficult for anyone, but especially for Luxembourgers, to comprehend the idea of leaving one of the most successful international organisations in the world. So to add more meat to the bones, as we say, we invited Dominic to put things into perspective and have an unusually candid and transparent discussion on how the United Kingdom ended up where it is today. Indeed, such insights into the heart of the UK political apparatus are very rare and refreshing at the same time. Our listeners will note that this episode is much longer than the usual 30-minute duration as we decided to publish this mostly unedited and uncut version of this extremely insightful discussion. You'll also note that this piece was recorded just a few hours after Boris Johnson's resignation as a Member of Parliament, which sent shockwaves across the UK and beyond. But now, without further ado, please enjoy this timely conversation with Dominic Grieve, former Conservative Member of Parliament here in the UK. Dominic, welcome to the show. Thank you. So we've got a tradition on this uh, show, so uh, we always give our guests the opportunity to introduce themselves. But in your case, I mean, as we cover off uh, Luxembourg, and now we're based in the UK, recording live in a studio. uh, Well, not live, but we're recording in person in a studio. Could you, for the benefit of our audience, provide a bit of background and tell us who you are?
0: I'm Dominic Grieve. Uh, I'm a British politician although not currently involved in parliamentary politics. I was in the House of Commons from 1997 to 2019, a Conservative MP. Uh, I served as a frontbench spokesman when we were in opposition. Uh, I was Shadow Home Secretary and Shadow Justice Secretary uh, between 2008 and 2010. And David Cameron, when he became uh, Prime Minister in 2010 and formed an administration, I became the Attorney General which is slightly untranslatable in continental terms, but the attorney is the principal legal advisor to the government. And he also has the oversight of the prosecutorial system in England and Wales. And he has a number of discrete functions uh, relating to maintaining the rule of law and upholding the authority of the court system. And so I did that job for four years from 2010 to 2014. Uh, I then parted company with David Cameron over the European Convention on Human Rights and some disagreements on policy on that. Uh, I then became the chair of the Intelligence and Security Committee of Parliament, which is the organization which has the oversight of our intelligence agencies and their operations. And I continued doing that until 2019. But the big change was that in 2016, we had the referendum on our membership of the European Union. That led to a prolonged political crisis and put me at increasing variance with uh, my conservative colleagues. And as a consequence of that, it got to the point where in 2019, when Mr Johnson became prime minister, shortly after he became prime minister, he expelled 21 MPs from the party of whom I was one. And I could see that the writing was on the wall. And when the election took place in 2019, I couldn't stand as a Conservative MP. Uh, And so I stood as an independent. I didn't think I would have much chance of winning, but it was quite an interesting thing to do. And I lost the seat I had been representing. And I then went back to my original career, which is a barrister. I'm a lawyer. I practiced at the bar for 17 years before I went into politics. And that's what I'm doing now. I also have a number of trusteeships. Uh, I'm a member of the Council of the Luxembourg Society, uh, amongst other things, and I do quite a lot of uh, broadcasting, some journalism, some peripheral politics, uh, mainly relating to European matters. I'm a member of the Institut Jean Monnet in Paris. So there are a series of things which keep me very busy, and I have a bit more time than I did in the past to go and do other things. I walk to Compostela. Uh, last year so I walked 1,800 kilometers I think in all um, which was very good for me and I, uh, I also got up to Scotland to do some mountain climbing and I have a house in France where I go in the summer.
2: So you know you had a very interesting career so far and um, as this podcast is about Luxembourg could you give us a few details about your relationship with the Grand Duchy?
0: The relationship is a slightly odd one. I have no family connection with Luxembourg at all. What happened was that my father, uh, who had joined the army, during the Second World War, he was totally British, found himself uh, after a career during the war in which he was doing staff jobs or, or, and also he was out of the army for a time, principally actually, with the Free French, with General de Gaulle. In 1944, he found himself uh, working in a unit that had been set up to deal with the administration and the links with the civil authorities in Belgium and Luxembourg after they were liberated. And as a consequence, 24 hours after the American troops entered Luxembourg in September 1944, he found himself in Luxembourg as part of this small team. Uh, which was there to help facilitate the administration of the Grand Duchy during this transitional period when it was still being fought over, because in fact the northern part was still occupied by the Germans, and then it was the Battle of the Bulge in late 1944, early 45. Um, and my father fell in love with Luxembourg. Um, it's a small place, as you know, a place where everybody knows everybody else. He got to know a large number of people. He had a he did a lot of Work helping the grand ducal family. So, to give an example, the grand duchess's sister had been uh, imprisoned. She was the princess of Bavaria. She'd been imprisoned by Hitler, and she was detained in a in a prison in Weimar. And once that was liberated, he went off to find her and bring her back to Luxembourg. Um, he. The mess they were in, because it was a military mess, was shared with the Prince Jean, as he then was, because he was there from really September, on and off from September 44 onwards, before the Grand Duchesse Charlotte came back. And my father was very happy there. And I think people were probably quite happy with him, because he ended up with a large number of Luxembourg decorations. He was only 27 or 28, so he was a young man. And it was clearly a very formative experience in his life. And as a consequence, he kept, uh, for the rest of his days, an immense uh, affection for Luxembourg. And although he didn't necessarily go there very much, he did because he became a very pro-European politician. So there were visits to Luxembourg linked to his pro-European activities. He was in parliament in the 60s and 1970s and early 80s. Um, he was involved with the Council of Europe in Strasbourg. And so Luxembourg was a place to which he, he went frequently and occasionally would take us. So I, I got sort of as a teenager, we went on a visit and we met everybody again. And of course, one of the features was a lot of the young people who were just emerging after the occupation in Luxembourg in 1944-45 went on to become... The principal Luxembourg politicians, the prime ministers, the speakers, in the twenty-five or thirty years afterwards, um, so that's the connection. But it was a it was a real family affection. And when I got married, um, my wife and I we walked out of the the church to the Marche de la Procession dansante of Ettenbach. So it gives you an idea. So partly to please my father, partly because I thought it was a very nice tune and a very nice way of ending the wedding, um, and so. This has rubbed off a bit on me. I became a member of the Luxembourg Society um, and took an interest in Luxembourg. And of course, because of my own political career, I have been from time to time. I went over to argue cases in the European Court of Justice uh, when I was attorney general. Uh, And I have friends there now, uh, not necessarily all Luxembourgers, but because it's such a European hub. There are a number of people, particularly lawyers, and my wife also has friends who are lawyers who are based in Luxembourg. They're working in the commission or they're doing all the court. They have, they have connections there. So we don't go very often, but I always enjoy going. So
2: what is your one of your best memories uh, by visiting Luxembourg?
0: There are, there are probably two. and One, I think the northern end of Luxembourg, up in Yarden, is extremely beautiful. Uh, and I'm always very happy when we go there. And it's a lovely place to walk. It's it's beautiful um, Ecternach, Viandum, These are very nice places. And then just being in Luxembourg City. Um, I can't remember exactly when it was. It's about before COVID, I'm afraid. But back in about 2018, 19, we had a long weekend, a reunion weekend of all these lawyer friends, which took place in Luxembourg and which was sort of really perambulating from one good restaurant bar to another. And Luxembourg's got plenty of those. I think it's the most attractive um uh, most attractive city. I, I I can't say I'm wild about the Kirchberg as a, as a as an area, but the the historic core of the city is, I think, an absolute delight and it's a very good place to be. And obviously the north. As as the someone,
2: north. someone who is from the north in Luxembourg. It's a beautiful place, yes.
0: I hadn't appreciated <laughs> that I had hit the nail on the head quite so well.
1: But Adrian is not such a fan of the law. It's it's like like Dominic. I, I don't tend to go there very often. Put it that way. Um, but you yeah, know, that's a very uh, it's a very comprehensive introduction, uh, uh, Dominic. Thanks for for the all all the context. But but again, I, I think um, uh, before we just dive into the core of uh, the, um, the the discussion. Um, so you, you entered politics uh, in the early eighties, as, as as far as I can uh, uh, see, and. Um, you um, And as you mentioned earlier, you became an MP, I believe in 1997, wasn't it? And then un- until 2019. Just from your point of view, so you, you trained as, as a barrister. But I'm always interested to understand, what were your motivations? Why, why what did you want to join the UK politics? And what were you hoping to achieve at the time when you made that decision?
0: You've got to go back to the 1970s. And admittedly, I'm sure there was a bit of paternal influence on this. My father was involved in politics. But my ambitions as a teenager were not to be a politician. What I think changed things was that when I was at university in Oxford, this was 1975 to 78, it was a very difficult time for the United Kingdom. The economy was doing badly. There were a large number of strikes uh, there was a degree of social dislocation. Uh, there was a lot of anxiety about the future. And for those of us who were just at the university stage, um, it motivated us. We There were some of us who said, we've got to do something about this. Um, this is ridiculous. We shouldn't have the country in its in its state like this. And it was in a way the precursor to Mrs. Thatcher becoming the prime minister in 1979. It was part of that revolution, certainly on the conservative, the center right, which was a very profound one, which took place in that period. So that's what motivated me to get involved in politics. And when I came down from university, I, I'd i been interested in the conservative club, essentially, at the university. And then when I came down, uh, I took an interest in London politics, and I became a local councillor in 1982. And that really got me going. I then thought I'd be interested, whilst also pursuing a legal career, but I would be interested to see if I could um, become an MP. I got on the candidates list. I fought a seat in 1987, but in fact, I didn't get a winnable seat. I didn't get a seat to fight in 1992, and I only got a winnable seat slightly unexpectedly at the very last minute in the 1997 election. So ironically, I finally got into Parliament the very moment when a long period of conservative government was coming to an end. So in terms of influencing the political debate, uh, that first period of conservatism was over. Uh, And in fact, then 13 years in opposition, when you can do your best to influence matters, but it's a very different world.
1: But still, you managed to, uh, I mean, after Labour, the new Labour Party, when they they exited the... um government used to manage to be to be there and influence the of yes, uh, the uh, politics and as a I was able
0: to be of some influence I think when Labour were in power we were I, I became I had an interest obviously I was a lawyer although I didn't go into parliament thinking I want to be a lawyer in politics actually it proved to be very difficult to shed my legal background so I started taking an interest in constitutional matters. We had a lot going on. You may recall in the late 90s, we had devolution to Scotland and Wales. Uh, there was talk of constitutional change at other levels in the United Kingdom. I took an interest in home affairs. I'd had a long-standing interest in penal policy and criminal justice policy. So those were the things where I tended to focus on foreign affairs as well. Uh, and I suppose I got niched. And so progressively, I became a junior spokesman in those areas. Uh, I was appointed shadow attorney general in 2003. So I was already beginning to provide advice to the shadow cabinet. And as I say, I suppose the the high point was becoming shadow home secretary in 2008. But um, because we had a coalition when uh, the conservatives came into power with the Liberal Democrats in 2010, it was a bit of a reshuffle. Ken Clark became Justice Secretary, which I might otherwise have expected to do, and I became Attorney General, which is a very distinctive role in government, because it is probably the least party political ministerial role. Because the attorney has to provide impartial advice. He may be a supporter of the government, he's got to be. But he is there to deliver impartial advice, including. Advice that his ministerial colleagues may not wish to get. So it slightly detaches you from the day to day political discourse. And it may actually have been the undoing of my political career because progressively I found myself probably becoming more and more detached as I watched some of the things that started to happen uh, in the period from 2010 to 2014, and which were in a way the precursor of the Brexit debate and the referendum in 2016.
2: Well, if we are um, jumping ahead a little bit to uh, the current state then, and with someone who has links with Luxembourg, as you as you mentioned, and what do your friends and colleagues um, in, in Europe or in Luxembourg tell you on how they see the
0: current state? I think universally they are both confused, bemused, and sad, I think the best way to describe it uh, obviously there is not a single one of them who thinks that the uk took the right decision in leaving the eu uh, our departure is missed that may come as a surprise sometimes because it could be argued that the uk was an irritating presence but actually i think it was quite a useful presence even if it was sometimes irritating uh, and we had a major contribution to make and we were respected uh, and we're gone so the absence is noted, uh, particularly, I don't know, I think smaller countries within the European Union note it because on the whole, if their opinion as the way something should develop, um, they look for a bigger partner who may share that opinion. And from time to time, the UK would fall squarely as one of the major influencers. And we're not there anymore. So really, you're looking to France or Spain. Uh, or Germany, uh, or Italy, and probably really mainly France and Germany. So we're missing. And at the same time, they look at a country that they seem to have a great deal of affection for. And the state of our politics in the last six, seven years has been very disrupted. Brexit has precipitated a political and economic crisis, which is far from resolved. I don't want to exaggerate it. It's not as if everything is falling down here. But you only have to look at the number of prime ministers we've had, uh, at the strange swings in public opinion, and at the general tone of debate and discourse to see that we are still in the middle of an intense debate about the United Kingdom's place in the world and how we best operate as a country. And it's completely unresolved. And so, to that extent, those people who promoted Brexit, saying it would introduce this wonderful clarity of purpose to the United Kingdom, free of the shackles of the European Union, well, that's been proved to be complete nonsense.
2: Um, quite interesting. What you um just mentioned that smaller countries looked for, you know, a partner, and in in certain debates, um, and the UK or Great Britain was always the kind of a partner they could go to. Would you say that uh, the UK has been, during the time in the EU, more of a pragmatic partner compared to France? Because they were very often in in controversy um, with each other. would say less, less dogmatic. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: yes, I agree entirely with that. The, the UK's approach to the EU has always been pragmatic, whereas the French approach has always been much more ideological. They've had an idea of what they want to turn the EU into, and they've tried to promote it, and at times, it has may gone up some blind alleys. Uh, there's no doubt that there was a period in the 90s, late 80s and early 90s, partly as a result of the prospects of the expansion of the EU into Eastern European countries that had been under communism, when I think some very rigid models started to be promoted, and in a way, it culminated with the attempt at having a European Constitution, which failed. Um, And I think that some of the people, the bureaucrats and the Eurocrats, I don't mean that pejoratively in Brussels and indeed in Luxembourg, were running ahead of public opinion by a very significant margin. And the UK never shared this. So uh, in those circumstances, uh, the UK's approach, I think, was pragmatic. And oddly enough, we left the EU in 2016 at a time when, in many ways, some of these arguments, you could say, the UK had won. <laughs> it was The model that the EU was developing um, seemed to me to be much more in tune with what the United Kingdom had been seeking in the 1980s than possibly what France or Germany had been looking at. But I think it's, it's also important to remember that you cooperate on different things. So my impression always with Luxembourg was that there was a very strong sense of unity of purpose with the United Kingdom on issues of foreign affairs, for example. I know that's peripheral to the EU, but nevertheless, it's important. Human rights, are the rule of law, Luxembourg is an immensely successful, tiny democratic state, I mean, that is, but that is really what it exemplifies, quite apart from per capita, GDP being one of the highest, if not the highest, I can never remember in the world. It's It's a really successful place. Those are the areas where you saw cooperation. Issues like European integration, probably the UK and Luxembourg didn't see eye to eye in quite the same way, but that's all part of the, the way in which the EU worked. You know, on, on a subject like that, the UK saw probably much more closely with Ireland um, in terms of of closer regulation or fiscal policy, so the, these are these are variations. But it was a dynamic relationship, and I think there's no doubt that um, the UK has always valued the relationship with Luxembourg, and I think the successive Luxembourg governments have always valued the relationship with the United Kingdom.
1: There's one thing that you were saying earlier. Um, again, possibly, now, as a Luxembourger and chair as well. We were born in a in a world or in a country that's massively benefited from the European integration. And, and I think a lot of Luxembourgers do recognise that today, that without, without the contribution of the uh, European Union, the country would be in a completely different place. I haven't got the feeling that in the UK, people would have appreciated that in the same way, because probably the way politicians or uh, anyone trying to, to, to convey the benefits of being part of the Union uh, would have been made correctly. So my, my question to you is, to what degree... Do you think that uh, the fact that the UK is no longer in the EU is, is, is due to a lack of communication to uh, the citizens?
0: It is due to a lack of communication to citizens. I think you're, you're right about that. The problem has always been that um, the UK elites, by which I mean the political elites, have always been conscious of the benefits of EU membership for the most part, but have always been reluctant To spell them out. So there's also been an opposite tendency in Britain, fuelled in part by sections of the print media, but also, I think, a residual sense of British exceptionalism, which has said, well, why are we involved with this uh, large international organisation, which has quite a big impact on our lives, Uh, and has complained about it? And I realised when we came to the 2016 referendum campaign, there was David Cameron, who came before the Conservative Parliamentary Party when he announced the referendum. And he made a speech and he said, look, we've got to be realistic about this. Membership of the EU is overwhelmingly in our national interest. But here was a politician saying that after having spent the previous eight years of his career Essentially, going along with a sort of default position that the EU was really a bit of a ball. And so his ability to persuade people that it was important to vote to remain in the EU rather than to vote leave was seriously undermined. And equally, you could see with Boris Johnson a man who I think fundamentally was perfectly pro-European but was completely narcissistic and selfish in his own outlook, that he saw the opportunity of raising his political profile and popularity by backing the cause of leaving, even though I happen to think he didn't really believe in it himself and actually was very surprised, if not horrified, when he achieved his aim. And that, I think, absolutely encapsulates the problem about the way this issue has been debated in Britain. And I have to plead guilty to it because I was a Conservative MP from 1997 to 2016. Yes, I had a Conservative association where the sorts of sentiments expressed by Boris Johnson during the referendum campaign were often prevalent. And the temptation was always to say, smile sweetly and say, yes, it is very difficult, isn't it? But not to actually challenge it, to say, I'm sorry, but you're just wrong about this. I did occasionally do so. I would try to put the other case, but we didn't really put the case sufficiently clearly. And when the opportunity came, when we had to do it, it was too late.
2: You mentioned earlier, between 2010 and 2014, leading up to, um, uh, to the Brexit vote, if you could pick one moment in these four years, what happened that the switch all of a sudden came, you know, that David Cameron put the referendum out on the 23rd of June or something, whatever it was. Um, and another thing was, um, you know, you mentioned there's a, there was always a lack of communication uh, about the benefits of being in the European Union. I think from the way I always saw it was, good politicians kind of never were interested in going to sit in Brussels or Strasbourg, but we had the likes of Nigel Farage and some other characters uh, there.
0: You're absolutely right about that. And there was a lack of communication, for example, with our MEPs in Brussels. They always used to complain, the Conservative MEPs, well, we're out in Brussels, but we have no contact with you, the members of Parliament. They didn't even have a pass to get into the building the the UK Parliament Building. That was the extent of the detachment. There are a number of critical decisions which Cameron made, which I think contributed, I'm afraid, to what happened in 16. The first one was that when he was standing for the leadership of the Conservative Party in 2006, he announced, to my astonishment, And interestingly, to the astonishment of David Davis, his rival, who is often seen as much more Eurosceptic and back-leave, that we were leaving the EPP, which I think was a disaster. I didn't actually realise the full extent of the disaster at the time, but it was, because it separated us from what was essentially sister European parties, admittedly ones which may have had slightly different agendas, but nevertheless, in values terms. And philosophical terms reflected our outlook. The second problem he had, and I have sympathy with him about this, is that as a consequence of the financial crisis of 2008, when we came into government in 2010, firstly, we were not a majority party. We were um, in coalition with the Liberal Democrats, which fettered his some of his ability to do things he might have wanted to do. But it had also created a climate of considerable scepticism about the European Union. After all, the European Union had not been able to prevent the crisis of 2008. Um, and Cameron started looking for diversionary tactics to placate what he saw as a growing right-wing populism, which was being manifested in Farage's The Rise of of, of UKIP. Um, As you remember, there was a defection of two conservative MPs to UKIP. Um, Cameron had no regard for UKIP at all. I should make that quite clear. But he was clearly frightened and UKIP's success in the European elections really worried him. And that's what precipitated the Bloomberg speech, which was when he announced that the cons- a conservative government would offer a referendum and a renegotiation which I think was a very grave error. And I think that George Osborne, who was one of the very few people he consulted, told him so at the time and said, don't do it. But he really was worried. He was worried that in 2015, when the election was going to take place, uh, we would end up with a situation where UKIP would win seats. And he wanted to try to do things to prevent that from happening. And that, I think, was at the absolute heart of this slide um towards um anti European right wing start, which led inexorably to the referendum result.
2: I think another moment was when Tony Blair gave a speech at the European uh, I think it was in Brussels or in Strasbourg, I don't remember where it was, where he literally attacked Nigel Farage and Nigel Farage used that as a as a promotion tool. And I think that both what you just mentioned and that particular moment kind of worked I mean, that was a, a, a gift that kept on giving.
0: Yes, and I think that maybe that, and it applies particularly to the Conservative Party, because after all, we're the right-of-center party and there is no real significant party to the right of us. The Conservative Party has been wrestling for quite a long time with a much more nationalist, right right-of-center element within it, tending to try to pull it in a direction which the majority historically didn't want to go. We had it at the time of the original referendum in, in 1975. My earliest political activity I ever engaged in was campaigning for the Keep Britain in Europe campaign in 1975, which of course was won overwhelmingly with the support of both the Labour and the Conservative front bench. But there was still a significant Conservative and indeed Labour element who didn't want to join the then EEC. It's
1: interesting what you're saying because um, so now, now, you, now we talk a lot about the past and uh, how the Conservative Party has evolved since then and, and there have been a lot of things changing in UK politics. But uh, if, if we are to focus on the present, so if we look at, I mean, especially from, from the outside world, the current government, Conservative government, is turning more and more populist the narrative is getting very extremist and, and so forth. And more and more, we tend to hear or read headlines about dinghies not, not being able to cross the, the channel in the absence of having any, any legal routes to uh, to apply for asylum and, and so forth. So, uh, so going back to my question, so it, it, it sounds like for you, the, the Conservative Party has, has changed a lot. And um, my question is, what would it take for you to uh, to become part of it again? Because it's... When I when I look at this now, it's a it sounds like the Conservative Party is is, there's so many fractions within it, so you can't it can't re-identify with the traditional values that it used to uh, to promote. It's it's turning into it it should split to become more relevant again. That's my personal opinion, but maybe you have a different view on this.
0: Your point is completely valid. The Conservative Party, like all political parties in the UK, is a broad church, as we call it, um, because we have a first past the post system there's really only room for two and a half parties. Uh, and, uh, and, and without that, you're never going to be elected. So as a consequence, we have no, for example, no UKIP representation or Brexit party representation, whatever you want to call it nowadays, or um, the, the latest, <laughs> the, <laughs> they change their names in parliament at all. But the Conservative Party has always contained quite a wide range of views within it. What's happened in recent years is that uh, essentially a fringe element in the party historically has taken it over. And it's taken it over, firstly, because it probably reflects the views of the membership. Remember, there are only about 120,000 members of the Conservative Party, so they're not representative of the people who vote Conservative. They're representative of the people who turn up to meetings, and even only some of them do that. Uh, and uh, Sunday morning parties and all the other things that conservatives do and raise money, um, and they put up candidates by elections, uh, at, at local elections. So uh, that element has taken the party over, and backed by the referendum result, it's given them a sort of legitimacy where they've said, we are the authentic voice of conservatism. And a lot of my conservative colleagues, even though they may not share those views, have sort of gone along with it and said, well, we're in a party. We have to accept um, that the party has shifted. Now, it's undoubtedly shifted, although I think one's got to bear in mind that um, the high point of that shift probably represented in governmental terms was the arrival of Liz Truss in Downing Street, and it lasted 40 days and came to a very bad end. I see Rishi Sunak, despite his support for Brexit in 2016, which I've always regarded as inexplicable, but leaving that to one side, I see Rishi Sunak much more in the standard centre ground of what I would expect from a Conservative Prime Minister. The difficulty, however, is that he is still grappling with the problem of having a significant element of his parliamentary party plus membership who don't share those views. Uh, look at the diatribe delivered by Mr. Johnson on his departure, which is an astonishing moment in itself. Which um, happened yesterday, just in the context. Which happened happened I mean, yesterday. Uh, yeah. Um, denouncing, leave aside all his self-justificatory rubbish, which is very typical of Mr Johnson's general narcissism, that he's never done anything wrong and he's been persecuted. But he had a series of digs at um, Rishi Sunak as prime minister, that the policies were completely flawed and that Brexit would only work, you know, if his magical formulas were being adhered to and that these were not being done. So Johnson knows what he's doing. He was tapping into this element of the party that believes that that's the way forward, but it's clearly not what Rishi Sunak believes. So this battle is not over. Uh, I find it depressing uh, because I am a conservative philosophically. I'm certainly not about to go and join another political party, Uh, but I am homeless. I'm not a member of the Conservative Party anymore. And whilst I would be very happy to see a day when I could rejoin it, I don't really have the confidence at the moment that it has sorted some aspects of its policies out sufficiently for me to do that. Um, so I just sit on the sidelines. Most people treat me as a Conservative and they're probably right to do so, but I'm, a, as I say, I'm an exile.
2: So now we sit here less than 24 hours and Boris Johnson sending his resignation as an MP. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, Pulled a few punches in his letter, so what a what were your first thoughts last night when you when your phone started pinging?
0: My, my phone started pinging I, w- I was asked to do a large number of radio programs. I have to say once I'd read his statement my my response to one of the people wanting me to do radio was i said i he, he i said I don't think he needs my assistance to bury himself. uh It struck me that it was an extraordinary statement. it was petulant. ah, uh, it was completely self-regarding uh, the digs at his colleagues i don't think will go down very well with the conservative his conservative colleagues and indeed they've just stayed completely silent no one said a word in support equally no one has actually said good riddance uh, but then of course they're all tainted those who served under him are all tainted by the by the fact that they accepted this man uh, as their prime minister after he'd been elected by the membership I would like to think that it's the end of Johnson. Politically. Yeah. Politically, yes. I mean, obviously not otherwise. I'm sure he's going to make a great deal of money in journalism. I, I'm not worried about his financial future. But uh, he, I, I hope politically it is the end. But he clearly doesn't want it to be the end. You could see lurking in the statements the belief that he might triumphantly come back, possibly at a, a forthcoming by-election but there was also something about it which i thought was very significant was that it also showed how he just doesn't like reality after all he's left because the privileges committee have investigated his lies and have said we are satisfied that you willfully lied to parliament about the partygate scandal and he can't accept that if he really thought they were wrong then you would have expected him to uh, let the report come out, to make a defiant speech on the floor of the House of Commons and go on the attack and then wait to see if there was a recall petition in his constituency. And if, as he claims, his association think he's wonderful, they would support him and he would stand at the by-election and he would be triumphantly returned. But it's quite clear that he doesn't, rationally think that that's the likely outcome. So he's jumped to try to avoid the consequences of his own action. And I think it's when people start to reflect on that, they will realize that in a funny way, it's the actions of a coward. Uh, And and also a bully, somebody who cannot, if he doesn't get his own way, he's not going to be martyred. He's going to try and run away and and come back by some other means.
1: So... Again, from, from someone who's external and has been observing what's been happening since Johnson became more involved in, in government and, and then left it, it's, it seems to me that for a number of years now, the the way UK politics have operated and the kind of culture that Boris Johnson has instilled in the way they operate, it feels toxic. I think that what you've just described sounds very toxic. And well, we, we can be hopeful that this legacy will not last too long, who knows. But in your opinion... What would it take for this to disappear and then the, and, and sort of UK institutions to operate again at a, at a level where people can trust them again?
0: It's a very interesting question because it actually goes beyond Johnson and beyond the Conservative Party. And I think it also touches on the wider issue which affects all Western democracies. Because the means of communication have become so developed in the last 30 years, podcast, whether it's social media, processes by which people's opinions are shaped and formed. Indeed, the extent to which this can be hijacked by bots, the Russians trying to interfere in an election, for example. And we've got to a point where the communication is much more important than the issue that is being communicated. And this became quite apparent for me under Tony Blair's government. And so the result of this is that we get politics which don't address the fundamental issue because politicians find it much easier to avoid those issues and engage instead in what I would call presentational politics. Saying what they think is likely to influence people in a positive way towards them at any given moment. Now, is there going to be a politician around who's going to break this particular mold? In Germany, in fairness, I thought Angela Merkel was a politician who understood this and was prepared to confront difficult issues. You may think she was mistaken about some of them, but she was prepared to do it. But historically, both under Labour, with Blair and Gordon Brown, to a lesser extent Cameron, but undoubtedly Johnson. Um, This phenomenon has continued, and the toxicity will only be taken out of politics when we get a politician who is courageous enough to start telling some home truths about some of the intractable nature of some of the problems we're facing. So, to take an example people landing on the beaches in Folkestone in little boats. It's causing a lot of public disquiet because it shows a government unable to control a form of migration, albeit it's right to say that 45,000 people a year is a drop in the ocean compared to the million who are coming in by other means. It does wonder why we're getting so excited about this. But it's all about headlines, precisely. It's all about headlines. And then... They come up with a series of solutions which any rational analysis will show are not going to work. So they're manipulative solutions because they give you a headline. There was Priti Patel talking of sending boats out which would sort of wash the boats, sweep them back into French waters. Uh, This is all nonsense. And I think um, we've got to break that mould. Now, it may be done, it might be done by a Labour government under Keir Starmer, a man for whom I have a lot of respect, but I'm also perfectly aware that he's subject to exactly the same pressures, and I see some of the irrationalities creep into Labour Party policy as well. Um, And it's very easy in opposition to say you're getting it wrong, but they haven't actually come up yet with any credible alternative. And within the Conservative Party, Well, Sunak seems to me to be much more anchored in reality, Uh, but he is still subject to these pressures. Finally, look at the way government is conducted, because we now know a lot more about it. I watched it a bit when I was in government from 2010 to 2014. But you can see it, the whole Partygate episode, the descriptions of how Number 10 Downing Street was being run. What comes across, it looks like a student society. I don't wish to be negative about the young, but we are in a very strange world where it looks to me that 26 and 27 year olds are strutting around inside the Prime Minister's office exercising enormous power and influence without any maturity that goes with it. They may be highly intelligent and having boozy parties in the evening. And I just, this just doesn't come across to me as being grown up. Um, and I think there is a significant issue about this. The tendency in Europe in recent years is for the political figures to get younger and younger. Uh, I'm not about to, this. Isn't an argument for my return into political life. I should hasten in my mid-sixties. But the, <laughs> there is something missing, and uh, the whole system strikes me as being geared towards gimmickry. And we've got a lot of intractable problems in Western Europe which affect Luxembourg as much as we do. Mass migration is a real intractable problem. There are potentially millions of people wanting to come and live in Europe because the places where they live in Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East are frankly becoming uninhabitable. This is an existential problem as to how we both accommodate them, control it, and also maintain our democratic institutions and culture at the same time. These are really big issues nobody's prepared to actually really talk about them. Instead, what gets talked about is the gimmick. And I think that that's where we have an enormous problem. And it's not just in Britain, but in Britain, it has manifested itself in a particular way. And of course, one of those manifestations is is Brexit. In France, in contrast, President Macron has not unreasonably concluded that the French pension system is unaffordable, Because we are an aging population and people are living longer. And when he tries to persuade the French people that they're going to have to work a bit longer, not all that much longer, they revolt and take to the streets and start burning things. I mean, this is but in fairness to the President Macron, at least he took the decision.
2: Unpopular decision. Unpopular decision.
0: (laughs) But clearly the right decision. We don't seem to be able to do that. And I think that's the the fundamental underlying difficulty.
2: I think it's never easy to take decisions that are unpopular, uh, especially in 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 Britain where you know so much is highlighted in the media, and media here is very different to the ones in Germany or in, in France or other European countries. Would you say that, uh, you know, as a former politician or politician in general, politics in the UK and also in other countries uh, in Europe and obviously also in Luxembourg, do we need a few more rebels like yourself, young, you know, younger, from like in the 70s, that come into politics and start shaking things up for the right reasons?
0: Yes, we do. And the interesting question for me is, is that phenomenon happening or not? The, the evidence, because I go and speak frequently in universities, doesn't at the moment suggest to me that there is some massive rebellion of the young, saying we've had enough of this. Indeed, one of the arguments is that the Brexit referendum was lost because those under thirty, even though they wanted to stay in the EU, didn't turn out to vote. Uh, and there's no doubt
1: <laughs> they say that it's because the weather was bad on the yeah, day well, of <laughs> yeah. <So>, uh, <laughs> the referendum. Whereas the oldies,
0: the oldies all all went. And when I go to universities, admittedly, they're different societies I sometimes go and address, or sometimes they're conservative associations, but sometimes they may be groupings of people, non-party political, but interested in politics. But what I don't get the impression of, but I may be wrong about this, is that sort of surge of, I'd like to think, patriotic um, annoyance, which I felt when I was at university in the 70s, which was, this cannot go on. Why is our country being messed around in this particular fashion? There must be a better way of doing things. Instead, what we're undoubtedly getting is single-issue protests. Just stop oil, uh, extinction rebellion, including some which is breaking the law, which is not actually a solution to these problems at all. Um, And I would love it if there were a movement in which large numbers of young people getting engaged in political parties started saying, we want change and we want things to be done differently. And when you sound them out in opinion polling, the very things they say is, you know, we'd like politicians to tell the truth. We would like people to have an honest conversation with us. But they're not actually taking the steps themselves to get engaged in a way that might bring that about. But I may be wrong. It may be it's happening around me, and I simply haven't picked it up.
1: I think you mentioned it earlier. The probably back in the seventies, there was, I mean, the, everyone had worries and issues to to, worry, to to think about. But today, as you said, the social media presence and the fact that youngsters are, are very much d- distracted by lots of things and and wrong headlines and and now deep fake, you know, AI that's potentially distorting the, the truth. Uh, it's it sounds like back in the days, people had. Because they had fewer distractions, they, they they could focus on on the actual task. Today, it's it's becoming very much, and that, and that's sadly enough, pe- people take advantage of that because we don't focus anymore on the task. So I think what we need to do, actually, what we need is less
0: noise and actually focus on the course. Right. I'm sure that's right. And you see, the other thing is because of social media and the ability to communicate, we don't sit down and talk to each other face to face any. I think this is the other very big change this podcast isn't a way of face-to-face conversation it just happens to be broadcast to the world but so much is just being circulated in echo chambers of people sending each other messages um When I was at university, if you wanted to communicate with someone, you had to leave my college at Oxford and you had to walk half a mile and you had to go and knock on their door without any idea as to whether they would be in or not. And you'd leave a note pinned to the door saying, you know, might we meet at 5 p.m. in some cafe? Um, And there weren't all that many cafes to meet in then. But that was the life. Nowadays, the communication is immediate. And yet, oddly, I don't think it's actually improved. It's improved some things, clearly, scientific knowledge, the opportunity for exchanging data. All these things have been massively changed for the better. But in terms of the interaction of human beings with each other, I think it's done us a lot of harm. And I don't think, I don't think we've really got to grips with it.
1: So we've analysed all, all potential causes and the problems that, that we are going through now. And the uh... I, th- I think that our listeners will get a, quite a broad picture about now sustained the, the UK and, and how you view the, the world in general and, and Europe and Luxembourg more specifically. If, um, yeah, t- taking, taking sort of, a, I wouldn't say a guess, but an educated guess and looking into the future, if you had 10 years time to put the UK back on track, what would you do?
0: I think you're going to find that the, the geographical and economic logic is that the United Kingdom needs to be more closely integrated with its European neighbours. Can talk forever about trade agreements with the United States, you're not going to get them. Boris Johnson mentioned it, you know, something which we'd lost, we were never going to get it. We can talk about trade deals with Australia and New Zealand, they're wonderful to have. Very good idea, but they add 0.001% to your GDP. The damage we've done to ourselves is that we have interrupted the free flow and exchange of people and goods with our nearest neighbours. And I think that the, the evidence is overwhelming that whether it's a Conservative government or a Labour government, that is the issue that is going to have to be addressed. And that must inevitably mean building new links with the EU. Now, at what point that tips over into rejoining the EU, that I think is a more delicate issue. But I think that the trend is absolutely crystal clear, and it will be driven by economic reality. And of course, it's a rather humiliating phenomenon in view of some of the promises which the Brexiters make. So, for all my things we've been talking about, I'm, I am quietly optimistic that over the next 10 years, We are going to see a rapprochement between the UK and the EU and its member states. We are going to see higher levels of cooperation, a greater willingness at UK level to accept what is essentially EU-driven regulation in order to achieve that. And that we may well see, particularly on the demographic changes taking place in the United Kingdom, that um, by the time we get to a 10-year point, there are people saying that we should be rejoining the EU. Of course, there's another issue which is where is Europe going more generally. We haven't spoken about the Ukraine and the challenge that poses, but it's a very real one. There's All a serious issues. risk of armed yeah. conflict engulfing us. I, I'm, I am by no means uh, uh, sanguine that somehow the Ukraine war is containable. I don't know it's desirable it should end quickly, it should be, and it's got to end in a Ukrainian victory. It cannot end in anything else, or we are sunk as a continent. And I don't think people have really grasped that fully. Um, But that also has some positives, which is bringing us together a realization, actually, of the UK's importance within the overall European uh, architecture and the other fact that we can't escape, which is that our dependency for defense purposes on the United States is, I think, it's not... The United States is turning in other directions and we are just a lower priority for them. So we have got to up our own game and we can only do that collectively. So here are a whole series of phenomena which I think are going to affect European policymaking. And with the other one, which we've touched on, and I don't think I can escape, which is that um, can Europe provide a secure environment for its citizens in the face of the disturbed conditions in all the world in our immediate periphery? And that, I think, is some big questions. But the UK will undoubtedly be in that conversation. So on the whole, I think that the people will, in 10 years' time, be looking back on the period from 2016 to Johnson's departure last year as an aberration.
1: It sounds to me the the younger people will have their revenge, um,
0: you know, the ones that, that, that
1: didn't vote at the time of the referendum. and And as you said, by the time demographics will have shifted, the younger people that enjoyed all those benefits was the uk being a member of the eu once they realized well we have actually lost a lot of things so maybe yeah on this and it's an optimistic note to, to stay at. so um maybe just uh, maybe just a, a final word because i think well in the interest of time we've had a very long <laughs> conversation now on luxembourg again so we we're all members of the um luxembourg society and um yeah we, we met you through it so that, that's also the reason why you know we managed to get you on the on the podcast. So if you were to do if you had a chance to to make some promotion to for people to join it, what would you tell prospective members?
0: I'd say um Luxembourg's a small country and it's a small society, but actually it does a lot of good. It brings people together, it discusses issues of common interest to the UK and Luxembourg. Um she has the capacity to expand and do more things if we had more a bigger membership. Uh, it's well supported by the Luxembourg ambassador, very kindly uh, does this, and I think by its um, by its membership. And um, I would say, please get involved. It will be, um, it, it's, it's a good place to meet. And of course, we, we get then often as
2: well uh, to spend some time at the Luxembourg embassy. Um, and not to forget, uh, 23rd of June is coming around quick when we are celebrating Luxembourg national day unfortunately it happened on the same day when uh, when uh, brexit happened so but um, I think if you in terms of uh, Luxembourg, will you join uh, will you visit Luxembourg
0: in the in the near future? I hope so. I'm not sure when I, next only likely to happen, but I can see that it might happen in the course of the autumn or winter of this of this year and not not won't, won't be before then. Uh, but as I say, I do have friends there, um, and I may have some reasons to go. So that would be um, very pleasant from my point of view.
1: Well, Dominic, thanks so much for taking the time uh, to speak to us today. It was a very good round of the uh, UK situation, and and, and I think the, the rare thing that we don't hear very often is again someone who who's looking back and 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 admitting mistakes. I suppose uh, about what's been what happened in in, uh, in UK politics, politics, but also to have a An external view and understand a bit more, you know, with all the noise that we experience, uh, having other insights, different insights into what's happening. So it's very enriching. Thanks so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank Thank you you very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Luxembourg's leading business podcast. If you're listening to our show on Apple podcasts, please rate our program using the five star scale and leave us a review. Or if you're tuning into Spotify, it takes just a few seconds, to give us a rating on the overview page of our show, you can also email us with your feedback or suggestions at info at Lux